calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Reppin. I'm really excited about today's episode. We've got a really talented and busy actress with us. She's been on NBC's hit show, New Amsterdam. She's also been on The Get Down, Three Pounds, Tell Me a Story, and Gotham. And currently, she plays Abby Frazier on ABC's sci-fi thriller, Emergence, which, by the way, is a great show. We're so lucky to have this wonderful guest. She's just incredible. She is Sabrina Gavetta. Sabrina, thank you so much for coming and spending your time with us. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Dear pleasure. You know, I love hanging out with you and any chance I possibly can get to see you and work with you is is amazing. And I know you're super busy shooting a hit show. (laughs) Yeah. Emergence. Emergence. Oh, you make that sound so much better than me. It's me speaking in Spanglish. You know I love the show. So just quickly set up what the premise of the show is, and we'll sort of dive into some of the great elements of the show and get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, so the show is about a young girl who was found at the a plane crash site by the police chief, played by Allison Tolman. And they, in trying to find out who this sort of enigmatic creature is, she pulls us all into this conspiracy that's larger than any of us expected. And when I say us, I mean the people that surround Joe, the police chief, who sort of orbit her. We all sort of orbit the central story of this little girl and this police chief that's trying to keep her safe. Let's talk about the the cast that's on Emergence that orbits this character, Joe, who's played brilliantly by Allison Allison Tolman, who I love. Talk about the family dynamics and the the surrounding cast. You learn early on, Joe is an incredibly good cop. At the top of the show, she gets handed a really odd situation and starts having to bend the rules. And the people that surround her allow her to break those rules and and start bending them along with her and for her because of their intrinsic deep trust of her. If she's asking for it, I'm sure there's got to be a good reason. And how about the family dynamics? Michelle Fazekas and Tara Butters, the creators there. Extraordinary. Awesome. And one of the things that was really important to them was to create um, something very familiar, very accessible, and for people to feel like 
these very regular people have something very extraordinary happening and that everyone can sort of empathize and be compassionate to them because you see yourself in each character. I mean, there's so many great elements about this show. The characters are great. It's beautifully written. One of the great, many great things about Emergence is it's got you, it's got Donald Faison, who Mm -hmm. is Alison Tolman's ex-husband on the show and it is an interracial marriage Mm -hmm. or interracial relationship their characters get along great even though they are separated there's still very much a partnership but their family and their mixed marriage is not a plot point it just is is. which is so awesome your character Abby is Joe's best friend can you talk a little bit about your character and sort of how their relationship is they've been best friends since childhood so I've known her and I've known her dad um, Ed played by beautifully by Clancy Brown always and uh, Alex her ex-husband I've probably been friends with for a really long time because I think we all probably grew up in town and went Mm -hmm. to school together and we've gone in different directions career-wise but I think we have this uh, intrinsic understanding of each other we know our rhythms we have a short hand with each other and we don't really need to say the things that need to be said right right it's such a great friendship and that's another thing that is so great about Emergence is there's strong female characterizations yeah, that's my favorite. that are not cliched or cartoonish. I or mean, like the issue. She's just the cop. We're not going to talk about the struggles of females trying right. to become the chief of police, which I'm sure she's gone through uh, right. to get to the point that she's at in her career, as has Abby. But it's that's not the point of the show. And I love that. And I love the fact that your character, Abby, and Joe's, uh, Allison's character, Joe, are just best friends and there's no cattiness that's oh, portrayed yeah. a lot unfortunately on television i mean no, can no. you talk about how how is that for you to play to to have such strong female leads and are not you know pitted against each other for the sake of women are quote-unquote catty yeah. no I, I mean that's part of what drew me to the script to begin with because michelle and tara you know they're like read the script let me know what you think and i'm like i can't begin to imagine a scenario in which I don't like what you've written. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, they are incredible. I'm sure the pilot's going to be amazing. And it, it was exactly that. The family dynamics were super tight. People had real relationships. Relationships that I felt were kind of like the ones in my house. Except, you know, there's this little girl that shows up in this well, kind yeah. of extraordinary I mean, it is situation. TV. That's it is TV. Ordinary people and right. stories and, and backstories that I, and, that I bought totally from Gary. Right. And I, I love seeing that representation in the show. Now, Emergence is helmed by, you know, you mentioned Tara Butters and Michelle Fisikas, yes, who are my superheroes. just incredibly talented, extraordinary showrunners. Can you talk about what they bring to the table, what their style is, and what it's like to have two female executive producers? Because you know I'm a huge fan of them. Yeah, no, they're they're fantastic. Having them at the helm gives me a great deal of peace and comfort (laughs) because (laughs) I don't worry that I'm going to have to have a weird odd conversation about like okay so as a woman or as a person of color or as a anything like I'm not going to have to have a conversation where I'm like okay I I don't want to be the pregnant single lady I don't know some stereotype that's just weird I mean although that happens too not that that's not valid but I feel like they allow the breath 
for a different kind of representation that is not issue based or narrow. Right. Which I dearly appreciate. So that alone gives me a sense of, of calm and peace. We talk about the scripts and we have conversations and they're collaborative in that respect. They're not, oh, that's so great. you know, they're like anything you need or want or need to talk about, please reach out to us. And they're very open and, and kind at the same time that they're incredibly talented. They're good people. And that's, oh, that's the kind so of thing great. I want to always be surrounded by. Now, you mentioned maybe having an awkward conversation of, you know, like not wanting to portray a stereotype. But you and I work in the entertainment industry, different ends of it. And there's still a huge issue of stereotypes being put out there for women and really any underrepresented groups. So in the past, have you found yourself needing to have one of those kind of tough conversations where you're like trying to sidestep portraying an archetype? Did you have a moment like that? I don't think of it as a specific moment. Yeah. Oh, I've had to sidestep in this. Because I remember one time I found out after a show didn't go that one of the episodes I met one of the, a friend of one of the writers that had been in the room and they <laughs> they were like, girl, so in this one episode, you were going to be pregnant. You were going to have had a one night stand and you were going to be pregnant and then you were going to have to deal with like what you did with that, right? And like, you know, have a kid, be a single mom, whatever. And I remember my blood boiling because I was like, thank God they canceled that dang show. Right. <laughs> like, I didn't want to have to have that conversation. Right. Walk on set and it was one of my first gigs, you know, like that alone is it's it's enough to shore my courage to just be on set and right. shoot the scene with a lot of people that I love and respect. Right. Without having this, this notion that I'm like, all right, now I have to advocate for myself at the same time and maybe put my job in jeopardy. Right. right. But, you know, there was all these other characters in the show that for, you know, nine, ten episodes had had like rampant casual sex. And oh, it was like the subject of the show. And. No consequence whatsoever. And then all of a sudden they were going to make the little brown girl be like, well, she had a one night stand, not even on screen, mind you. Oh, I get to have a off screen one night stand that turns into a pregnancy and I got to deal with the consequences. And who the guy? I don't know. But you pregnant girl, you better figure that out. I like it. No, (laughs) I don't like why are we going to promote that? Right. I can't think of like a particular moment where, okay. where I was like, oh, I, I had to I had to say this or stand up for myself because I'm sure that has happened or, or probably like you probably blocked it out. <laughs> or what probably happened was I thought of all the really good things I could have said three months later. Right, right. That's usually what happens, <laughs> like, right? Or I, or I'm still playing it in my mind, you know, right. I wake up in the morning and I'm like, oh, I could have said that. That's Sad. good to not have a reactive moment. Well, in this business. you know. I guess that's that's one way to look at it. That's so sweet, you know, silver linings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what happened with this show? Well, so Michelle and Tara wrote this script where I, I was uh, cast with Gina Torres and mm. Raul Castillo. and Super talented. Yeah. Cast. Um, Marta Milan and Christian Diangochoa. Okay. And we were the core family. The first day on set, I walked on and I, they had me in these like little tiny outfits, tight pants, a little frilly shirt and all my hair and okay. all my tood, like all the things that intrinsically are me. Right. I walked on set with that and nobody was like, oh, actually, can you take the curls out? Can we straighten our hair for that? Like none of that right. was a demerit. I remember going on set thinking I had a piece in my in my chest that I didn't ever, had never experienced. And I realized it was because I'd always go on set with this unacknowledged and unspoken 
stress about what kind of Latina did they want? Did mm. they want the the Latina that's maybe she's just brown? Maybe she's like ethnically vague. She just the the, the brown black girl like that we're demographic jacked off. Right. Maybe we want the brown female. Oh, we also have females on the show. And or do we want her to have a degree? You know, does she right. she smart? Is she just sort of comedic relief? And I remembered realizing that I wasn't doing any of that work. I just got on set. I said the lines and it, maybe it was funny. Maybe it was not, but it was authentic. Right. Right. In the most basic sense of who I feel I am. I've never gotten the opportunity to play that person. And I was, I don't know if I ever told them this. I I think I told the writer because I, in tears, I was like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I just choke up thinking about it now because Sharice Castro-Smith wrote the oh. pilot. She gave us an opportunity that that the show sadly did not get picked up. And even though it didn't, I, I'm telling you about it now because it was seminal. Right. It allowed me to understand I don't have to do this kind of work to go in, on to set. I can allow myself to be me. I mean, that's a huge moment. How has that sort of shaped you and how have you carried that with you having experienced it? That experience, Tara Michelle, it, it allowed me to be more targeted in what, how I choose the roles I play right. in terms of to be not only artistically uh, fulfilled, but ethnically and racially represented and feeling like I belong. Because it hasn't been so much that my career has been full of experiences that, I, that have been negative, right? That, that's a mischaracterization. What I actually ended up doing more than that was that I didn't do that work. That unspoken work that I did. Nobody asked me to do it. It was right. uh, something that I that I just intrinsically felt because of my upbringing in this country, which is, you know, our, our right. race relations in this country is so specific right. that I end up feeling a room before I've walked in, you know, without even thinking about without it, right? even yeah. being conscious of it. Right. And That's when crazy. I realized that I wasn't doing the work, the absence of that work is what made me conscious of it on Tara Michelle's set, which is why. I'm grateful to that opportunity that I experienced. Even though the show didn't go, right? I walked away with something huge. Yeah, and it's interesting that that happened three years ago. You'd think that, like, yeah, that maybe four years ago. Like as adults, we'd be like, "Oh, okay, more hip to it." It's, it's not sick. even work that you're aware that you're doing. Is that crazy? And that's the insidious part of what negative race relations can do to a person's psyche, to their sense of self worth, mm, absolutely, to what they bring to a room is inherently damaged right if you have negative primary experiences right and so as a child if you have experiences that are formulating your sense of self i carry that into my adulthood and here i am a grown woman with children husband life and i'm just still learning about oh look there's That's another layer Isn't of, that crazy and so what happened was the next job i got i didn't have to do that work walking in and whew, so much easier You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. 
It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. When you actually caught yourself in that sort of moment where you realized how insidious it was, because you don't realize it until you realize it, really. Totally. How did that hit you when you actually noticed like you didn't even realize you were doing that? I cried. I cried. One day on set, Sharice was repositioning background talent who were playing the members of this party that we had, Right. right? Celebrating something. I don't even remember what. And... She went in the back and she's just quiet work. She went up, she talked to a second AD and she talked to Michelle Terror. And, but next thing I know, and the folks that are in the background pool, she's grabbing some slightly browner people, grabbing, you know, just a, a cross section. Who is this that did this? The writer. She oh was like talking God. with the, she. The, the second AD. Oh, yes, she. She's talking to the second AD and the first AD, and they're grabbing, you know, let's put this person in. Just like That's all of a so sudden, great. the people that were there, and they weren't placed there by any particular design. They were just kind of randomly grabbed. But then she was like, no, no, I want to craft the visual oh, wow. that we see. And That's so awesome. I turned to Gina and I was like, you see what she's doing? And Gina's like, oh, I, I'm watching all of that. And I oh, told her, so and I was great. like, baby girl, don't think that that's lost on me. I wept. It was oh, a beautiful, so beautiful, awesome. special day. And I love that it was she. Yeah, because Tara and Michelle roll like that, yeah. That's really <laughs> beautiful because you know that often when you guys are shooting, you guys are moving at a breakneck speed. Oh my God. So people yeah. are randomly, like for people who are not in the business, they're just grabbing background, directing them and throwing them in spots. How amazing is it to have someone on set to really stop and take the time to think? Hey, you know what? This don't look right. Let's make a difference here. What an incredible anecdote to have somebody just take, what, a few minutes. Yeah. And that in that moment, the like, it was a very visceral opportunity yeah. for these folks who often feel invisible. Right. Were featured in a way where they allowed a cross-section of Latino life, right. which is... The rainbow of color, age, gender, representation in every way. That's great. To be at this party. And it's a subliminal thing. Nobody's going to look at it and see like, Ah. oh, look who's there. I mean, I would. Yeah, me too. Right. But I think most people would see it and it would be like a swath, a pan across the audience. And then we go to the featured players player and they're having a speech on stage. Right. Right. But I would see it. And most people would feel it. I have to say, I think those details make a huge impact. Oh, yes. And it feels so good to hear that there is somebody out there that does that. 
But um, let's back up for just a second because I want to go back to your upbringing. So, girl, you're a New Yorker. Yeah. What was it like for you to grow up and, and sort of tell me a little bit about your heritage and, and background? So I'm a first generation Venezuelan. My father's also half Trinidadian. My paternal grandmother is Trini. I was the first one in my family to be born here. And oh, my right. mom is one of 12, 11, of Big which family, are yeah. female. My dad's one of eight old days. <laughs> Big families. Okay. So I was born in Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy. And we didn't live there long. We moved to Woodhaven, Queens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember that as our first, my first house. Conscious of that house. And then after that, we moved to Rosedale, Queens. And it was, you know, a suburban existence. And, and I loved it. Nevertheless, it was a very racist upbringing. Tell me a little bit about it. We were the first family of color to move on to oh, our block, okay. into our neighborhood, actually. The family down the block from ours, they egged our house and what? threw garbage at our house for two weeks. How old were you at this point? Seven. So how did that hit you? My dad, I don't even remember this. I must have blocked that out. He would sit up at night with a bat in the living room, minding the house those first few weeks because, you know, we didn't know what we were going to get into. And it was a tenuous situation, right? And we didn't know who was doing it. So, you know, you don't know what's going to come through the door at your family or get thrown through the window, right? That is awful. And I was one of few brown children in my elementary, mostly white. My best friends became uh, two young white girls, Wendy and Renee, across the street. But it was a, it was fraught in terms of the the race relations. I, I developed a sense of self worth that was lesser than. I learned to oh, paint no. myself into a corner. I was really good at disappearing in large crowds. You know, the school plays and they did stuff. The Gettysburg Address that was done and the Romeo and Juliet with a cat and mouse version of Romeo and Juliet that we did like I was one of the little mice but like I never was trying to be the center of attention because and this I just discovered recently because I the memory came back I remember walking down the street one time there's this young very kind of stocky doughy white kid who was I don't know, a couple years older mm-hmm. and me and my best friend on either side of him we were walking down the street and we were having an argument about something probably like Thundercats or who knows, something ridiculous. Yeah. It was awesome. He got upset with me and I was arguing with him about something. And he was like, yeah, well, Nick. <gasps> and I was like, and I didn't even know what the word meant. All I knew was that people are really upset on TV when that was said. Right. And they did what you just did. They gasped. And I was like, oh, that's a bad word. How old were you at that point? I must have been like eight. And he was maybe 10 right. or 11. And... And I mean, now as an adult, I'm like, he's just parroting his, what he's seeing at home, what he's hearing at home, right? But I didn't know that. I'm sitting there and I'm like, and I was like, well, you're, 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 you're ugly. You know, well, you're, ne- you're sweaty and stupid. All things of which were true. But <laughs> like he, he trumped me every time with right. that word. And I didn't understand how to come back and back when i was in school there was this whole like one-upping each other that we were right well that yeah and that's what you do yeah and we were kind of always you know playing these games where you're like oh yeah well you're whatever and oh your mom or whatever and this i always shied away from the game and i realized recently it wasn't that i wasn't good enough to do it it was because i always felt that they had a trump card and that was it because i'd already started forming a lesser than sense of self-worth. 
that I didn't belong in this wow. very white neighborhood. Right. So I spent a lot of time hiding. Mm. And we moved to Miami when I was 12, and I did 8th to 12th in Miami. And I... <sighs> Talk about culture shock. There was a lot of like big hair, and, and I think the ozone layer was depleted by the women, in, the young girls in Miami. <laughs> the hair couldn't be big enough. Right. Bad. It was one of the hardest transitions that I had as a childhood because I was huh. like, in New York, at least I knew where you stand. I, I, I walk in and I know you don't like me. Right. And we don't have to worry about me. Over there, I felt like. You know, they were smiling in your face and stabbing you in the back, you know, because right, right. it was just really plastic in my experience. That's so interesting because I would think that that transition would be a little bit easier if things were, nah, I you. mean, did you see more Come people on. that look eighth like grade. you? In, well, eighth, eighth grade, grade is, a, is brutal. And you you don't fit as it is. Right. It doesn't matter if everybody looks like you, you just don't fit. And then, you know, the, you got to be in the popular crowd or the druggy right. crowd or the, the, I was in the quiet, smart crowd. Mm -hmm. Not because I was smart, but because I was quiet and they were the only ones <laughs> who smart. didn't reject me outright. And the theater crowd, I was like, I don't, I'm not doing any of that. And you were still sort of blending in, right? Disappearing? No, okay. disappearing. Yeah, it was oh, that. You know, so you you see a difference between blending in and disappearing. Yeah, because wants. blending in, you find a place where you fit. Oh, you just... And I just would just Disappear. absorb into a, a corner, a wall, or like anything that was attention was bad because it right. called, called attention to me and my color and that I didn't entirely fit. And back then, like we're talking about Cubans who moved to Miami from Castro taking right. over right. a very white Cuban community at that time. So I still, back then, I remember one kid in high school asked me, so what are you, black or white? Because there wasn't an option. I was I, Once I started in the business, I was too black to be Latina and too white to be black. So I didn't fit. Right. You know, I had people tell me, oh, I don't really know what to do with you. That's... Going to a school in Miami at that time didn't necessarily help my sense of identity. It made me feel more like an outsider because now I don't even fit in the Latino world. Yeah, that's crazy because I would think like, okay, first of all, that whole story about like your dad sitting with a bat in the house, I mean, that would be unnerving if you were 20 something years old. I actually thought you were headed a different direction when you started talking about going to Miami because nah. that situation in Queens was terrible because, so you've got this doughy bully kid who called you the N-word, which is just grotesque and to see your father or your parent scared enough to be sitting to protect his family with a bat, I mean, that would shake anybody. I thought you were going to say when you went to Miami, the transition might have been culture shock because you saw more of you, but you sort of found your footing. And it was really interesting to see that it actually seemed like it went more the other way. Yeah, so... I didn't find my footing until ninth grade where they had this after lunch program where you could audition to do an art, like theater, dance, singing. Right. And I auditioned in ninth grade and I got in by the skin of my teeth, like literally last person in. I showed up late. Like it was a mess, the audition. And I did uh, uh, the model, the final monologue from the West Side Story with, you know, is it enough bullets here for you, for me to know, for everyone? It was the worst. I mimed Tony's head in my lap. It was the worst monologue. <laughs> you were in ninth grade. Though. What a, that's do. a pretty advanced monologue. Yeah. And not something you do as a monologue. Um, but, Noted. you know, one learns, <laughs> one lives, and one learns. You just did a whole nother Yui on me. Because how did you go from... Keep up, girl. I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> but you're full of surprises. 
how did you go from being a master at disappearing to yeah, going well, to do a monologue from West Side Story? Yeah, so that was a miracle that that even happened. I, the, the night before, my sister was helping me with the monologue. You can do this. And super encouraging. And I was like, but I can't cry. And I'm really nervous. And so she was like, look at me. What? And she slapped me full on. And I was like, oh, why did you do that? And she's like, do it now. Now. Do the monologue now. And I'm sitting there like, okay. And I start crying. And of course, like, God bless her soul. Like, it was Best hard you ever got. to one do. Uh, and also not something you can recreate in the room because she's not there to slap me every time I'm about to do that monologue. <laughs> Nevertheless, it didn't work out the same way as when I was bawling because I was hurting. But I just thought this would be fun. You know, I didn't really think about it. I was very comfortable at home and open and gregarious with my people. It was just being in, in public of yeah. people that could I could become a target in. That's where I would gotcha. disappear. Children yeah. can be really, really mean. So I protected myself. Yeah. Best way I knew to do that was disappearing. And the first year I walked into acting class and we did something called improv. I was so traumatized by the first day because I was like, well, I don't know. Like, who wants to do an improv? A bunch of people shot their hands up and I was like, nah, I'm in this corner. Ain't nobody going to see me. I'm hide because I know how to do that really well. Right. And I saw these two girls go up. One who was my best friend, Christina. Right. And another girl, and he gave him a scenario, and I was like, oh, oh, so you just throw them off the side of the cliff, and they try to fly? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, heck nah. <laughs> so I'm sitting there thinking, I sink or swim. Like, I either shore my f- courage, and I figure out how to get through this class and this particular exercise because i was like if he gives me lines it's fine but this whole like improv word (laughs) i either learn how to shore myself and do this or i i have to leave the school and i had already started to understand that all the misfits were there like we all in the arts yeah like all the kids that didn't fit in the traditional schools Mm. were there and i was like oh these are my people and so I was like, I got to do it. I have to swim. And I did. I found some little store of courage and some nook of cranny that I didn't know I had. And I went up and I did it. And it ended up being my favorite thing in the end. All those years, we're talking about a span of what, for five, six years? From the time you were in Queens to, to Miami or even more? Yeah, eighth, eighth yeah. grade to 12th. Those were hugely formative years. What was the kernel of strength that you sort of held on to through those years until you got thrown off the cliff and you did improv and you did find your family in the arts and it's so interesting that you say that the arts are all full of misfits Mm. and and i certainly agree with that and i think the arts is very welcoming to people who are creative Mm. who don't think within the boundaries that's what makes entertainment and the creatives so wonderful is because i think a lot of the creatives are people that didn't fit in that have different experiences I mean, we laugh about the monologue in some ways, but because that it's really laughable. No, but it is. It is, uh, and I want you to do it after 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 this podcast. I know, heart, I'm gonna I'm gonna record it with my iPhone and post it on social media. But um, but what gave you the courage to actually go from that disposition of being scared and disappearing to going? Okay, I'm gonna go audition because that's a huge leap, Zarina. I don't think my nature is one of being shy. Like I love no, you're curious. Yeah, I love being in groups and meeting new people and new 
cultures and yeah and the way different people like i enjoy that right i was in another skin for survival i had spent so much time in there it was hard to pop out of that but once i found a, a space where i belonged i think the fear of losing that was enough to propel me to sink or swim and right. swim because i either do this or i cannot go to this after lunch program anymore Right, And I don't want to lose this. I don't want to lose these people. These are my sisters, my brothers. And that is something you don't give up. Once you find a place in that, as a teenager where you're like, this is where I, I sing, my soul sings here. Right. You'll, you'll go through hell and hot water to, to keep it. Right. What was the most important lesson that might have come out of some challenges that you experienced, either something that you may have already discussed or maybe didn't, was a lesson that you learned and you hold on to now. I've always looked up to my elder sisters. And, you know, I went into this business as, as an actor because I, I saw my elder sister acting in school. My other sister, I remember I came home one day. And this is something I always am grateful to her for. She saw me crying. I come home and had an argue with my best friend or one of my friends. I don't even remember what it was. but And Zarema said to me, Zarema, the only thing that matters is your family. They are what is most important. Your friend now isn't going to be there to pay your rent mm. when you're an adult and you can't make it that mm -hmm. month, which is sobering at 15 because I hadn't even thought about paying rent at 15. I was like, oh, well, who wait, hold on. What? Like She's not going to be there when you have troubles, when you're grown, when you're out of the house. With, the only people that are there for you are your family. And that's who you need to be worried about leaving your side. Never forgotten that because it is a lesson that is sewn into the tapestry of my soul. The only thing I have added to it is that my definition of family has expanded. I agree. And it, Completely. it is people that I adopt and people that feel like you travel in yeah, I agree. Soul, packs of kindred souls. Mm -hmm. This idea of a larger, a greater family. I agree completely. Is something that it's tremendous. is the greatest lesson that that I've been able to kind of weather the the slights and the hits and the, the knocking yourself down and getting yourself back up that life gives you. Be grateful. I mean, gratitude is so important. Indeed. Every day to be thankful for the things that you do have. Strive to make the place you were Better than you left it. Sabrina, how would you define representation? It really is dealer's choice. What representation is to me or to you is what you need. And for me, my values are based on humanity and your intrinsic it's sense fantastic. of who you want to be in the world and how you want to share that. Right. But representation, I feel like at this point in my life, because I feel like I'm also constantly evolving yeah well that's that, being human yeah and it's like i just discovered that i was doing all this work on on set subconsciously that i didn't even know like it's a ever evolving sense of self and i'm grateful for it mm. because it, it makes me have to constantly think of uh myself and and self-analyze and how i fit in the world and not get complacent and now i've got kids and they force me to have to think about how they're experiencing and approaching and, and, and sharing in the world. 
And I want to give them tools so that they can do that in a responsible way. My right. biggest journey and my biggest challenge is to raise two socially and uh, emotionally and compassionate boys. That they become men that are emotionally compassionate and empathetic. That's awesome. In terms of representation on... Uh, in, in terms of equality and having a seat at the table, I think part of what the arts does is it, it, it makes us look in the mirror and we have to face what we're seeing because it's being shown right back to us. Right. So right now we're in this sort of renaissance of television and there's so much content. Yeah. And what I'm seeing in the content is a, a, a racial diversity in a way yes. that I have not yes. ever seen before. Yeah. But... I had very little representation growing up. Right, me too. People that looked like me. Now, I mean, my kids, and I know. they get to know that Obama was president. I, isn't that crazy? I, I was pregnant with my first when Obama was elected, and I wept. Aww, because I was like, I never amazing. thought I'd see this day. As artists, it's our job to sh hold the mirror up to us, to each other, and have us make it better. That's awesome. And I think we're doing that with the television what do you celebrate about you and your heritage and your background? Oh, honey, the food, the dancing, <laughs> the language, uh -huh. the sense of family, camaraderie, the gregariousness of, of, of my Latino culture, and that we've got a lot of love. I, I celebrate all the things that I, I felt outcast for so Zabrina we have a signature sign off here oh heck yeah yeah let me know who you are and what you represent my name is Sabrina Guevara and I represent those who feel like they don't fit in and yet inherently belong Love and thanks to Zarina Guevara for taking time out from filming to talk with us. Be sure to follow and keep up with Zarina on Twitter and Instagram. Her handles at both are at Zarina Guevara. Next on Reppin, we've got Mitra Mamari. She's one of the very few women who's also an immigrant and a partner at a major architectural firm in the U.S. As always, find us on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Subscribe, share, and leave a review. We want to hear from you, so you can also tweet us at Reppin Podcast and follow us on Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. Continue thanks to my technical director and musical composer, Mr. Nelson Pinero, for his time, talent, and care. And always to Gracie Kong for her love and support. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Till next time, stand up and represent. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my two wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I'm hoping to open up the conversation about balancing careers and family. The one thing I constantly hear successful people say, without fail, is that they wish they'd spent more time with their kids. That's time no one can get back. So I decided to create Business Dad, to engage in the conversation about how we're spending our time now, providing a forum for successful dads to share their joys and challenges of being a working parent. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier. 
And while this podcast will talk about business and will definitely be featuring dads, I think everyone can learn something from these incredible conversations as we unpack the expectations we all have about careers, relationships, and ourselves. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.